Hi, I'm Bill Arnold. Thank you for listening to this podcast. There are many more podcasts available at MyFaithRadio.com. Your support makes this possible. Thank you. Who knows where he is? And a warm welcome to Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold, and today is Guy Talk. So that's how we're going to get things started. I'm always looking forward to this time with you because uh, we get some great questions, and we love to hear from you. So text them over. You can start right now, 877-933-2484. Of course, that question is going to be about anything. Anything in the Bible, anything that you've heard, anything that you've maybe seen on the news related to our faith and our faith journey, Whatever it is, let us know, 877-933-2484. I've got the power panel in place. I have Dr. Peter Kapsner. I'm curious, Peter, when is your birthday? It is the 25th of November. November 25th. We've got Jeff Verdorn on Skype coming to us from Lake Michigan. Jeff, when is your birthday? July 7th. July 7th. Coming I, up. I knew that's coming up. And uh, Pastor Tom Parrish who usually is in the studio, but he's got car trouble, so he's in his home studio today. Tom, welcome. Good to be here. And when is your birthday? March 19th. March 19th. So the next Guy Talk birthday coming up is Jeff Fedorin's. We're going to get a big cake for him when he comes in. <laughs> Look forward to that. I'll be there. Yeah, I will be there too. So whatever questions you have, let us know. I'm going to get us started with this one. This is an interesting question that's already come in. Who are the 144,000? I'm looking your direction, Jeff. Yeah, so the 144,000 are described in the book of Revelation. Um, It it specifically tells us who these 144,000 are. So before before we get to who they are, I want to set the scene. So I believe that the, the next thing on God's prophetic calendar is the rapture of the church. And when the rapture of the church happens... All believers across the globe are caught up to heaven, First Thessalonians 4. Jesus said, I go and prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will certainly come back and take you to be where I am also. So I think that's the rapture of the church. That means that there are no believers left on the entire earth. Now, God doesn't like that when there's nobody to proclaim his word, his truth, his gospel to the world. So he actually sends two supernatural witnesses back to heaven, are back from heaven down to earth. And these two witnesses start proclaiming the kingdom to the world. And I think from their proclamation, then we see this 144,000, and Revelation specifically says it's 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes of Israel. They hold to the testimony of Jesus, and they proclaim the gospel to the whole world. I like to describe them as super evangelists Hmm. who go out into the world. Now, then from their testimony, Revelation says that there is a great multitude of people who are saved, and we see them, they come out of the great tribulation. Many of them are killed, and we see them then up in heaven. So God doesn't leave the world uh, without truth. He sends people to proclaim his gospel as we are today, right now, in this age. The church is to go out and to preach the gospel. Now, one last thing on these 144,000, they are all eventually killed 
during the tribulation period, it says they are beheaded because of the testimony that they maintained about Jesus Christ. And I believe they're all killed uh, before the end of the tribulation. That's very helpful. Tom Parrish, do you have anything to add? Nope. I think uh, just covered it. And uh, thanks, Jeff, for getting into the detail on this. Yeah, I, I appreciate that, too. It was uh, very helpful. You know, there are some religions out there that want to take this teaching and say they originally said that there was only 144,000 places in heaven uh, available, and you needed to join their religious mm. system in order to get to heaven. The problem is they grew bigger than 144,000. It's not a great marketing tool to say, <laughs> hey, you know, join our group, but heaven's kind of full already. Yeah. Uh, so they defined a new category of people, uh, kind of second-class eternal life at beyond the 144,000. So. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up, Jeff. I've had a dinner with somebody that would be part of one of those faith traditions. I believe in this particular case, it was Jehovah's Witness. And I, it was a good enough friend that I was able to ask him a series of questions about some of these beliefs and how do you know when, in their mind, the 144,000 people are fulfilled and and what does that mean if they have been fulfilled? And it was a pretty fascinating conversation. It's worth it exploring some of those other views just to have a, a, an understanding. And part of what I loved about how you outlined all of that from Revelation <clears throat> is that you said, this is your best understanding and this is my view of that. I think we could at least mention that there are other um, faithful believers that might hold to some differing views from Revelation 2, because it is just such a difficult book to interpret. And, and it really has puzzled scholars over so many years. And so there are, I think what you articulated so well is a reliable and a faithful view of the text. I think I just want to mention as well that there are other scholars who are, are equally committed to the scriptures who would suggest that there's a rapture that happens uh, right at the end, Later. that there isn't, yeah, like before the seven years or the 144,000 is symbolic of the completeness of the people of God. So it's it's a tricky book, isn't it, at the end of the day to try to figure out exactly what's going to happen? It is. The entire timing uh, that God's plan for the end of the age. Uh, yes, there are many, many views. And if you if you Google views of the end time, you'll find a thousand different views. Now, this particular one, this specific question, I would argue in Revelation 7 is, is where the 144,000 are mentioned. And it actually tells us that the number that I heard of those who were sealed were 144,000, all from the tribes of Israel, from the tribe of Judah, 12,000, from the tribe of Reuben, 12,000, and so on. So it actually tells us, so a religious system like a Jehovah Witness that are saying this is this is uh, the number of people who will gain access into, you know, heaven or eternity or whatever, it's just, it's clearly wrong, even from the simplest interpretation of the of the text, so. Mm-hmm. Indeed. All right, here's a question. I'm looking your direction already, Tom Parrish. Uh, who will escape the wrath of God at the final judgment? Who escapes the final wrath of God at the judgment? Yeah, who will escape um, the wrath of God Bible, at the final judgment? The Bible is very clear on that. Those that have submitted themselves to Jesus and are covered by his shed blood through faith. All those that are covered have passed from life, uh, from death to life. And judgment is no more. It says that in Matthew chapter 5. So that's why we want to encourage people now, don't wait till you see the signs of the end, although there are plenty of them. Today's the only day you've got. And this is the day you have to be right with the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's why I encourage people every day, share the gospel, tell them that Jesus is the answer and that people need him desperately. Yeah, agreed. And I, I, that word wrath is an interesting word as well. It has a couple different dimensions, it seems, 
uh, in the biblical text. And, and sometimes God's wrath expresses itself in that, that sort of hot anger that we might picture when we first hear the word wrath. And that hot anger seems to be reserved for people who are willfully defying God from positions of power and thus leading the rest of his children astray. God just has absolutely no patience in that situation for people who who are wielding some measure of authority and in doing so um, really are taking his children out of the picture. This is this is the picture of Jesus when he says to the Pharisees, uh, you Pharisees, you teachers of the law, you hypocrites, you travel over land and sea to make a disciple of yourself, and now you're making them twice as much of a son of, of hell as you are. And, and there's some anger in Jesus's tone. He's really upset with the Pharisees in those moments because they should know better. Uh, wrath also has another dimension in the Bible, and it's a little bit more akin to the idea of disappointment mixed with grief uh, and thinking in terms of, of with tears, God will still act. And this would be that there is a separation, wheat from the tares, and there are people who will be separated in eternity. But uh, for a lot of those people, it's more the response that Jesus had when he looked over to Jerusalem. And he said, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I long to gather you under my wings, but you would not have me. And, and that that's the language of tears and disappointment. That's the language of, I wish it would be different. And so I think sometimes we only think of God's wrath as that hot temper uh, versus the idea of, of disappointment and grief. And, and both do seem to appear in the text. Yeah, I, I agree. I'll just add the direct name of this final day of judgment in Revelation 20. It's called the Great White Throne Judgment. And that's when all the lost will appear before God's throne uh, with uh, God on the throne. Christ on the throne, who's been given, given all authority to judge, but also the church, believers. Don't you know, Paul says, that we will judge the world. On the other side are all of lost humanity, the dead, they're called in Scripture. And yeah. you know, go ahead, Jesus Jeff. said that the, the only, if you are written in the Lamb's book of life, Tom said it the way, if you're covered by the blood, if you believed in Jesus Christ, if you're in the Lamb's book of life, then this second death has no power overview. Or it says in Revelation 2015 that anyone whose name was not found in the Lamb's book of life is thrown into the lake of fire, and the lake of fire is the second death. There is a warning in James 3, chapter 1, that I never heard in seminary, and I don't know of any seminary that ever reads this aloud to the students, but it says, not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. And I think sometimes, as pastors and teachers of the Word, we have to understand that when we take on that call from the Lord, and it's a great call, and I really love it, and I've been doing it a long time, we also have a great responsibility, and that means we reflect really what's in the Word of God. We don't kind of make it up as we go. We simply say what people want to hear. And so I'm, I really encourage uh, those that teach the Word, be you know, honest with it, let it say what it says. Yeah, Tom, I know as, as I certainly knew absolutely everything there was to know about all things in my 20s. <laughs> and let's just say that uh, a wee bit of humility <laughs> gre- greeted me along the way. And, and I think uh, the, the further that I go along, the more troubled I am, and not in a bad way, I think in a good way, the troubled I am with the discipline of teaching because uh, people do really take you seriously in the role of shepherd or teacher and pastor. And, and I think it's part of why we've seen a lot of people perhaps exit some versions of institutional church because pastors and shepherds were wielding their authority in a way that was a bit more self-absorbed and uh, and led people astray. And so I think, you know, there, there's so many verses in the Bible. There's so much rich history of theology. There's so many beautiful Christian traditions in the East and in the West. There's just so much that I simply don't know. And so to stand up in front of students and, and claim that I'm a shepherd that knows all answers to all things, really, boy, oh boy, I don't want to stand in front of God and suggest that no. I made that claim. <laughs> 
Yeah, well, the Bible says all Scripture is God-breathed, useful for teaching and correcting, rebuking, and yep. training in righteousness. If we want to be trained in righteousness, we do that by studying the Word of God. Well done, gentlemen. We're going to take a little break. We'll come back with lots more of your questions. Let me know what they are. You can text them over, 877-933-2484. Again, 877-933-2484. If you're more comfortable with email, it's bill at myfaithradio.com. The Power Panel is Dr. Peter Kapsner, Jeff Verdorn, and Pastor Tom Parrish. 007 said he'd be here, but you know 007, he's here, he's not. But he just, he comes and goes as he pleases. As he pleases. As he pleases. We'll be right back. Listening to Afternoons with me, I'm Bill Arnold, and we're also uh, enjoying Guy Talk, which we do on Thursdays, starting at 4 Central Time, and we gather a roundtable of really smart men that answer questions. And I had a a gentleman suggest that Guy Talk was not maybe the best name because it might be excluding women, but I think more women listen to Guy Talk than men do. Those are the questions (laughs) that you tend to get, right? There's so many women that listen. Yeah, it's really yeah. Uh, really interesting. So we've uh, got lots of good questions coming in. Here's one about Scientology, which I don't know a whole lot about, but this listener was uh, recently heard a review of, of the Top Gun movie, which is very popular, and somebody referenced Tom Cruise was in the Church of Scientology, just didn't know what that was about. Does anybody have a short explanation of what that is? Well, bless all, Ron Hubbard, who is the uh, founder he was also a science fiction writer, and he basically unraveled this concept long ago, uh, and people have bought into it. And if you really read his books or you read what Scientology is about, um, it's a pretty strange belief system when you get right down to it. It's controlling. It uh, People have tried to get out of it, too. There are Hollywood people that have been in Scientology and have fought to get out, and they even have programs on now about it because it's not really doesn't have anything to do with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, or the Bible, it has everything to do with controlling your environment. So I would encourage people, even if you're dabbling in it, uh, be very careful and don't go that direction. Hmm. Agreed. I think it's a place that claims that they have a lot of secret knowledge, and so you also need to be uh, one of the proverbial insiders. It's a little similar to Masonic traditions that way, and even all the way back to, to the early church's time, they there seems to always be these religious cults that have a, a claim on some secret version of knowledge that you can yes. only achieve if you are some degree of an insider. So Gnosticism was one of the original movements that was along those lines. And I think Scientology, if I remember correctly, um, there's some ship that maybe some ships and, and, uh, and vessels and training that they have to take out in the Mediterranean when they really want to get to that level of secret knowledge. And so, yeah, Tom Cruise is on the inside. I remember when he was married to Katie Holmes that there was a lot of controversy about that because Katie Holmes was expected to bear children without any kind of therapeutic intervention. And, uh, and she, it took a long time to get out of that marriage with Tom Cruise. And there's quite a bit of controversy on that too. Wow. You know, it's fascinating. One of the critiques of Christianity is that, oh, you you're, you Christians are just so exclusive. And if you survey the religious systems of the world, they actually make 
competing claims, and they all have a, an exclusivity about them and about their claims. In the end, Jesus claimed to be God on this earth. So when he was before his disciples in Caesarea Philippi, he asked him, who do men say that I am? And then he asked, who do you say that I am? And and Peter responds, you are the Christ, the, the son of the living God. And this idea that Jesus came in the flesh, claimed to be God, uh, was crucified and was buried and rose again is a unique claim in human history. And uh, and Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. So the old C.S. Lewis argument is that Jesus either knew he was God or he didn't know he, he was God when he made that claim, and if and it's either true or it's not. And if he believed it was true but it was false, he's a lunatic. If he believed it was false and knew it was false, he's a liar. But if he's true and he is God in the flesh, well, then he is the living God who came incarnate uh, to earth. And uh, those are really the only three options. Scientology says that Jesus is a good teacher. Well, Jesus did not leave that option open. Here's the biggest problem we have in the world today whether it is somebody who claims to be a Christian or a Scientologist or whatever, they are ready to be indoctrinated by somebody else telling them what it says. Very few of them are willing to look at the evidence themselves. You look at the Bible. We have 66 books that have been available to mankind for thousands of years. Anyone can research what the Word of God says and see the consistency and see the final message. The problem I see is that most people when they tell me that Christianity is intolerant or Christianity is too exclusive or this or that, are people that really haven't read the Word. And that's why I always challenge people, show me in the Word of God where you're saying that. Now, Jesus is exclusive about himself. There's no question. There is no other way but him. But the problem is, I think ignorance, guys, is going to send more people to hell. Forgive me for that. But more is going to, ignorance is going to send them there because we have all the material in front of us, and yet few really take the time to look at it. What part, this is a smart listener named Michael said this, what part of whosoever is exclusive? <laughs> yeah. Well said. Yeah. Well said. That's well said. Yeah. All right. Let's move on. If you have questions, send it over. Text message 877-933-2484. Again, 877-933-2484. Another question came in on Scientology. My sister asked the Scientology question. So my question is, what defines a church? How can they call themselves a church? It's just a for it's a status, isn't it? <laughs> There's some sort of tax five hundred one c three status. <laughs> there might there might be a wee bit more, but I would say that's a starting point. Yeah. Right? Well, I, I mean, we've talked about this quite a bit on Guy Talk over the the different episodes and. Church in the biblical text, at least in the Greek, is ekklesia, and it doesn't refer to an institution. It doesn't refer to a staff or a sign or a steeple or um, people gathering together in a building or anything like that. That That is the way in which the church gathers. It's actually <clears throat> biblically uh, inaccurate to say that you go to church because the yes. church is the people of God in whom the Spirit dwells because they have given their lives to Jesus. And so... Um, the, the scriptures are pretty clear that God has built his church in whom the Holy Spirit now dwells, and it's a people who are following Jesus. Now, how those people gather is going to vary across generations. It's going to vary across cultures and uh, across different different races, and, and you can gather in a number of different ways. 
But if the Church of Scientology, in how they gather, is not making the claim that they've given their lives to Jesus in surrender, and mm-hmm. thus the Holy Spirit dwelling in them, then they're not a church. They're just another organization. The, the Scripture describes the church as a body, and that every single person, uh, like Peter said, who has believed and entrusted in Jesus Christ as their Savior is part of that body, and Jesus is the head of that body. As a body, I love the phrase, and I don't remember where I heard this first, but the body of Christ, the church, is the continuing incarnation of Christ. So Christ came, was incarnate in his earthly body, but he died rose again and ascended up to heaven. His continuing incarnation on this earth is through his body, which is the church comprised of all of those who are saved, who are born again. Mm, Love that. It's interesting because years ago, my wife and I had the privilege of going to Bangladesh, just north of India. We went to a Sunday morning worship service of a Bangladeshi church. I couldn't speak a word of, of the language. They couldn't speak a word of English back to me. The whole service was in their language. Uh, I recognized a little bit of the music, but not a lot of it. But I've got to tell you guys, the presence of the Lord Jesus was there. The Word of God was there. And when they read the Word in their language, I could kind of sense what they were talking about. And the sense of brother and sisterhood I felt was like nothing I've ever felt anywhere before. Because the church is a living body. It's not just a concept or an idea. And I think it's, it's such an important conversation to be having to define things in this way, you guys, because I think a lot of people are understandably troubled by the exodus of the next generations from the church. But again, we have to be very clear-eyed about what we mean by that, is that the exodus is from the way in which the church has organized itself over these last maybe 50 or 60 years. But the church has not always organized itself in that way. And so... Uh, for example, I have a 22-year-old and a 20-year-old at home, and they're just back from university, and they really want to gather together with fellow young people. So over these last uh, 10 days or so, they've had three gatherings at our house. They've gone out as well. It's It started with about 15 of them. I have a feeling there will be 25 to 30 or more, and, and they are desperately interested in faith questions. They really want to learn what it means to grow in the kingdom. They want to be equipped as disciples. They want to walk through some of their confusion and depression and all of those things. They just don't want to do it in the current version of the institutional church. And so they are the church. They are people who have given their lives to Jesus. They're just organizing in a different way. So uh, amidst the discouraging numbers, I think that if we encourage the next generation to just say, hey, if you want to gather differently, that's okay. The point of the church is that we keep giving our lives to Jesus and, and grow in our faith in that way. That's exactly right. And we need to hear that, Peter, more and more often. That is truly the church, and that's the way I've seen the church around the world. Mm. All right, we'll take a break. We'll come back. Lots more time for your questions. So get them over to me, 877-933-2484. That's the text line. Again, 877-933-2484. My power panel today is Dr. Peter Kapsner, Jeff Verdorn, Pastor Tom Parrish. We're so glad that you're listening. And I just got a listener saying I'm out watering my lawn right now listening. What a pleasant thing to do on a summer day. We'll be right back with lots more God Talk. Show with Bill Arno, Drive Time, Drive Time, the 
Let's get it started. Jump in your car. Yeah. What's for dinner? Hey. It's the afternoon show with Bill Arno. If you just joined us, you just tuned in, maybe you just got in your car. I hope you had a good day at work. And now you're heading home and you're going to spend a little time with the guys who um, comprise the power panel for Guy Talk. I've got Dr. Peter Kapsner, Jeff Verdorn, and Pastor Tom Parrish. So glad that the questions are coming in. Really great great questions. If you have one, send it over. 877-933-2484. Here's a question that came in. In 1 Corinthians 12, 3, Paul says, no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Is that why you think all other religious claims that Jesus is good and wise but can't speak to the authority as Savior? It's an interesting phenomenon, and I know of a true story that happened in India. Uh, and uh, let me share quickly what that was. There was a, a missionary in India who was in Calcutta, and a lot of people gathered around to hear what he had to say because he preached on Sunday. A sheik from uh, Hinduism came to see him one day. This was during the week. He lived on the second story. The sheik went up and asked for an invitation, and so he got one. And he says, look, I read in the Bible that very text, the one you just quoted. He said, you can't say Jesus is Lord unless you, by the power of the Holy Spirit, watch me. He says, I'm a Hindu. Jesus is Lord. And then he said, see, I could say it. The missionary said, come with me. They walked out of the balcony, opened the doors. There's a whole crowd of people down there. And the missionary shut it out. The sheik has something to tell you from the Bible. <laughs> and the sheik ran away. Because it is not simply the ability to say the words, it is the conviction of the heart and the willingness to take the feedback and even the martyrdom that comes with it. I like that. All right, here's a nice little perk that just came in. I listen to a lot of wonderful programs on Faith Radio, but hands down, Guy Talk is my favorite. I look forward to it every week, knowing I'm going to learn so much, be challenged in a good way, and laugh often. Thank you for all all for so freely giving of your precious time because I'm sure Bill doesn't pay well. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds right on all accounts. That entire, yes. entire text. That's, brilliant. that's lovely. Incredible. That's really good. I'm getting a birthday sure cake soon. I don't know about what you guys <laughs> yeah, are getting. That's true. Yeah, <laughs> still a ways away, Jeff. <laughs> yeah. That cake well, has not been ordered. Vanilla, by the way. Vanilla. Okay. And that uh, comment came from Teresa. Oh, that was lovely. Thank yeah. you, Teresa. Yeah. Nice. Very really nice. nice. Thank you. All right. Let's see. Here's a question. The pastor at the church I attend says that the believer should spend the rest of his or her life pursuing Jesus. What does that mean? I think it's one of the best statements that could ever be said. Because if you look at the Bible, Jesus is central to everything, Old Testament to New. Now, that doesn't mean you ignore the Bible. That doesn't mean you, you go running off just to strange places. It means, though, that every day your goal is to submit to Jesus, serve him, and learn as much about him as you can. And I even like to put in, become as much like him as you can in the way that you forgive, the way you talk, the way you share. And think about it for a moment, guys. If we had more Christians who were actually pursuing Jesus, not pursuing a denomination, not pursuing just their own version of some part of Scripture, but really pursuing Jesus, we would impact this world way beyond anything we can comprehend. You know, some might look at that word pursue and say, well, wait a minute, where is that in the Bible that we are to pursue Jesus? But there's lots and lots of examples that are that 
are are synonyms to that word pursue. So it says to seek him first and his kingdom and his righteousness. It says to abide in him. It says to trust in the Lord with all of your heart. It says says, uh, set your minds on things above. It says fix your eyes on Jesus, right, the author and the perfecter of your faith. All those things sound to me like pursuing Jesus, and I think that's the, the, the core to living by faith, Paul says, the righteous shall live by faith. And I think the core to that is we are the branch, Jesus is the vine, we are to abide in him, and then we will bear fruit. Yeah, I love that. I mean, to be a Christian simply means to be a Christ follower, right? So on, on some level in following Christ, you're pursuing him, you're seeking after him. And I, I think we live in so many different identities, don't we? We have our workplace identities, we have our, our voca- we have our family identities, our friend identities, maybe other vocational identities. And I think a lot of us are, are living multiple personality kinds of lives. And, and I certainly, when I talk to young people, but I just brought this up in a, in a gathering this last weekend too with some people in my age category that by the time you, your head hits the pillow at night, um, we're often very, very tired because you're going through all these different social settings, different things are demanded of you, whether it's from your boss or your pastor or your spouse or your kids or whatever it looks like. And you have to play by so many different kinds of rules. And I, I think what that pastor said about spend your life pursuing Jesus, I, I think to begin to learn to live out of a singular identity and that as an, as an image bearing son or daughter of the King who is following them for their life. Um, that can then hold you together in whatever social environment in which you find yourself. You're no longer a teacher. You're a disciple who is a teacher. You're no longer a father. You're a disciple who is a father. You're no longer a churchgoer. You're a disciple who goes to church. I think if we can just live in this more single-minded identity instead of having our faith be one thing among among many things we do, then the, the richness of a different kind of life will begin to envelop us. Good word. Yeah, excellent word. There's a question, gentlemen. What does why does Scripture emphasize the right hand of God? Well, the right hand is the position of power in the ancient uh, Middle East, and whoever sat in that position, literally, the people understood, spoke for the king, uh, was the final word for the king, and had the power and the authority of life and death. So it's the ultimate human position of authority next to the king himself. But you can you reach a point where between the king and the person that sits on the right is really no different. You run into one, you've run into the other. It's interesting. Thank you for that, Tom Parrish. Anybody else mm-hmm. have anything to add, or should I move on? I like on? that. No, yeah. that's my understanding. I well, like that. And I think it plays into the turn the other cheek piece, too. I'm going to have to go back and revisit an article. Maybe I can do it at a different um, Guy Talk episode. But I know a theologian, Walter Wink, does a really good job of taking us into what it means to turn the other cheek because he gets us into some of the power dimensions, Tom, that you just described. And so to turn the other cheek was not just uh, to become a person of nonviolence. There was something very different going on because in offering your other cheek, you were you were somehow subverting the power that was striking you the first time. So I'll come yes. back to that. But it was it, if somebody wants to look it up, it's Walter Wink turn the other cheek. He does a very good job about what's going on there. And it describes the right hand. I've read that. It's brilliant. It is brilliant. Yeah, I really like that. It is good. Yep. All right, here's a question. I've heard you all saying that the reason we are the church is that we have given our lives to Jesus. How do we sinners who by nature hate God give our lives to God the Son? Are we the initiators or is God? 
<laughs> well, this is well, only a 500-year well, debate yeah. here that we're, <laughs> yep. we're going to solve on the radio, but Let's I kind of like what – yeah, I liked what the, one of the listeners wrote in when we were in our discussion earlier. What is exclusive about whosoever? Uh, so I have a very simple picture of God's salvation. God loves all. He loves the world. He desires that all to be saved. He wishes that none should perish. So he sent his son into this world to die on the cross for the sins of the world, all the sins of the world, and he offers his salvation to whosoever and whoever believes, God will save. That's his work, is salvation to those who believe. So that's, that's my, uh, my, my, my biblical, simple picture of God's plan of salvation. Well done, Jeffrey. Well, that sounds pretty good to me. Yeah, yeah. What it comes down to is this. I was 22 years old, having been raised in the church and being an, an avid vacation Bible school kid. I mean, I learned the stories. I loved it. But it was 22 when I had a real spiritual awakening. Up to that point, they were great Bible stories, and Jesus was a great, you know, person, and I knew all about Jesus dying on the cross. At 22, though, I went through a spiritual awakening that I did not produce. I didn't produce it. The Holy Spirit did. It was at that moment when that came, that spiritual awakening, that I literally fell to my knees and surrendered my life to Jesus. Now, usually when you fall to your knees and you surrender, like, to the police or whatever, you don't take any credit for it. You simply say, I'm giving up. You're absolutely right. And that's what I ran into. And in all the people I've had the privilege of leading to the Lord Jesus, it is a spiritual awakening prompted by the Holy Spirit that a person can either respond to or not respond to, but I would never take any credit for it. It's still all his work, and I give him praise for that, and I'm thankful to be saved. Yeah, and I think one other potential angle that keeps the work in God's initiative, meaning that he was the one who initiated and is the only one that can make salvation possible for us. Uh, But another angle of that is that in the early church prior to St. Augustine in the 5th century, who really was the first to give us ideas that we were totally and uniquely and 100% depraved, um, prior to that, the, the general view among Jewish rabbis and some of the early Christian theologians was that we had a we had a sin running through us, but our heart was still essentially good. It's just that that good was being compromised by the sin and left unchecked uh, by a, a savior, or if it just ran its course, no physician interceded, then that sin would kill everybody 100% of the time. But in that particular view, then what it means is that you still can recognize that which is good, uh, but then it's your choice as to whether you're going to respond to it. And, and the salvation still only comes from God. The offer is there. It's a free gift. But th- this sort of strikes along a chord of what Paul writes about in Romans when he says that in my inmost being, and, and he's making a claim about his inmost self, I delight in the law of God. So he's saying that the deepest and truest thing in him, because he's coming from the hand of God, is that he delights in the law of God. But then he says these words. He says, but then I go to do the good that I want to do, and I find that I cannot do it because there's a different power waging war. There's a power in my flesh. It's the power of sin and death, and it's waging war against my inner being. And finally, he cries out, oh, wretched person that I am, who will rescue me from this body of sin and death? And he says, thanks be to God, who through Jesus Christ, our Lord, rescues me. There's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And I like that biblical picture of this because Paul 
is accounting for the fact that, hey, look, I've come as an image-bearing son of God. I am good at my core, but I am compromised entirely. And so absent of throwing my life at the feet of my Savior, I have no hope. But but it holds both the, the depravity of sin and the goodness of God all in the same hand and allows God's salvation then to move in that place. So I, I would hold probably a little bit more of that view. It predates Augustine's view that I think many of us uh, also are familiar with. You know, the core of this, really quick, is does God call some or does God call all? And Jesus said, when I'm lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. And I think God, who sends his Holy Spirit out into the world to convict of sin and righteousness and judgment, who puts eternity into man's heart, who says that the righteous requirements of the law have been written on their hearts, who says that all of creation declares his glory so that men are without excuse, and says in Revelation, Jesus says, I stand at the door and knock. Whosoever opens the door, I will come in and eat with them and they with me, a picture of salvation. And so I believe... I believe God calls all, draws all men to himself, uh, not just some. So that's really Agreed. at the, the heart of, of this debate over – and literally it's been going on for hundreds of years. So. Yeah, amen. Here's another comment by a listener named Michael. Almost feels like he's in the studio. He says, the true answer to a question will always be outnumbered by the wrong answers. Are we looking for the right answer? If not, what are you looking for? Mm. Well, I think we are looking for the right answer. I think we want to, uh, like James 3 was talking about earlier, we want to correctly handle the word of truth. So, um, look, we should all be the the good Bereans who search the scriptures mm-hmm. every day to see if what Paul says was true. Um, yes. So, yes, we, that's, I mean, that's in the end, whatever teaching you hear or receive on the Internet, on the radio, in a book, in a magazine, in your church, you as a good Berean, should search the Scriptures yourself to see if what they're saying is true. And I believe that the Holy Spirit will lead every single believer into truth. If you dedicate your heart to to God's Word, He will teach you. All right, when we come back, we're going to talk about the meaning of the dishonest uh, manager parable in Luke chapter 16. That's what's going to happen next on God Talk. Uh, thank you for the great questions that are coming in. We still have time for a couple of more. Text them over, 877-933-2484. Be right back. to Guy Talk, or guys who talk when they do it well. The power panel is Dr. Peter Kapsner, Jeff Verdorn, Pastor Tom Parrish. What we do in this hour is we respond to your questions. If you've been thinking about uh, a verse from the Bible or something you don't understand, maybe there's something you've always wanted to ask your pastor but didn't have the guts to do it, you can ask these guys. They'll take any question you've got for them, 877-933-2484. And let's get back to the question I left before the break, which was, uh, I have a listener who's been confused about the meaning of the dishonest manager parable in Luke chapter 16, verses 1 through 13. What is Jesus actually teaching here? This is a 
fascinating parable. I did a whole class on parables one time, and this one I probably struggled with more than just about any other parable because the traditional teaching – so the background is there's a rich man and a manager. The manager's about to get fired, but before he's fired, he goes to all the uh, rich man's debtors and basically cuts their bill down in hopes that they would treat him uh, favorably once he was fired. So this shrewd manager is acting dishonestly, not not good, but I think he's acting poorly. And the common interpretation is that the rich man is Jesus, and and but the rich man commends this manager for being so shrewd. And I just don't think Jesus would commend somebody for acting selfishly and dishonestly and deceitfully against uh, the person that he was responsible for managing his money. I think the key to this passage comes right after the parable. Once you get to about verse 10, it says this. Jesus says, quote, whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little is will also be dishonest with much. And I think the shrewd manager was an example in this parable of someone being dishonest with little. So I think that is is more uh, uh, that's my understanding of, of this interpretation not the rich man was jesus by the way rich men in parables and kind of throughout scripture are rarely described as good people <laughs> there so i don't think the rich man is jesus in this parable and i think the shrewd manager acted dishonestly uh and would not be commended by god i don't know what you guys have ever thought about this parable yeah i think you're spot on with that jeff i think it's so helpful when you can take jesus out of the equation of these interactions because by the end in verse 15 or 14 he's uh Luke is talking about the response of the Pharisees to this parable, and it sure seems like Jesus is talking and and highlighting how the Pharisees are interacting with one another, um, and that they're the subject of the story, that, that maybe Jesus is in, involved with the story. So I think it's a natural thing when you see master or, or you see manager that maybe Jesus is involved here. But I... My best shot is along the lines of what you said, too, that what's happening here is Jesus is exposing the false ways of life among the Pharisees that are deceitful at their core. Yeah, and read verse 14. It says, I'm sorry, just I was going to read verse 14 quick because of Peter's comments. The Pharisees who love money heard all this and were sneering at Jesus. So I think they took it exactly how you said, Peter. Hmm. All right. Here's well, a, it was, yeah, it was a parable against the Pharisees. And it, it had one point, you know, because the Pharisees should have been the top religious leaders along with the Sadducees, teaching God's word, teaching people who the Messiah was. But they were more interested in the worldly things. And Jesus says, as shrewd as they are in what they do, they fall far short of what I intend for you to do. And you have to be wiser or shrewder. He uses the term shrewder than they are. It's, it's really, uh, there's one major point here, and I think often it gets missed because we read the parable, but we don't, as you guys have done, and I thank you for it, push us all the way through verse 15. When you get through verse 15, it begins to make a little more sense. Hmm. He's not commending it. He's simply saying, that's the way you are. I want you to be different, mm-hmm. okay. but even smarter. All right. Here's my five alarm fire. I want to make sure we got plenty of time to cover this. So when a question like this comes in, it stops me in my tracks, and I want to devote time to this question. And here it is. The question or the comment is, more please, how do I get my name written in the Lamb's Book of Life? You know, I, I think it's very simple, and that is yep. to 
acknowledge that Jesus came in the flesh from God, that he died for your sins, that he was buried, and he rose again. Paul says that the gospel is this, that you that he received, I pass on to you, that Christ died for our sins according to Scripture, he was buried, and he rose from the dead. And if you will put your faith in him, if you will trust in Jesus Christ for your eternal destiny, for your eternal life, uh, God says that you will be in his Lamb's book of life for all of eternity. Good word. Really good. And that's really exactly good. what the Roman road talks about. That's what all of these talk about, that there is when you surrender to Jesus, you automatically transfer from death to life. Your name is written in, and that's where it's meant to stay. Well done. All right, here's a question. Uh, this one comes from my wingman, Terry. He says, when it comes to the question of election, what does... Uh, uh, when it comes to the question of election, what about Romans nine ten through eighteen? And of course, if you jump to that verse, it says, "I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion." It does not, therefore, depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. Any thoughts? Who's going first on this one? <laughs> <laughs> Didn't we already cover 500 years of problematic theological yeah, we history? Did. Well, and again, I, I think we would be remiss to be, um, we would maybe make a mistake if we were overly dogmatic because people really have looked at Romans in very different ways, um, all the way from the ways that it is teaching an idea of election or predestination um, to other people would suggest that Romans is, is teaching in a couple of different movements how God uh, how the Israelites failed in their uh, ministry of stewardship, thus justifying the inclusion of the Gentiles into the people of God being grafted in. And then by the time we get to those last few chapters, it is, but God is not done with Israel yet. He will have mercy on who he wants to have mercy on. He will have compassion. And uh, and so this is maybe not a map for an individualized salvation about who gets into heaven. Those questions were starting to be asked in right around the 16th century, primarily about the books of Book of Romans. It doesn't mean they're unimportant, but um, but I think to Terry Wingman's point that um, there's a lot of different ways you can understand Romans, and and I think that the biggest concern that Paul is trying to address here is how in the world can we justify justification? How can we justify having the Gentiles part? of the community of faith that has always belonged to the Israelites and the Gentiles were supposed to be left out. Well, here's how they're justified. It's not by lineage. It's not by national origin. It's not by the proclamations of God given to Abraham. It is simply people who put their faith in Jesus. This is what we just talked about with the Lamb's Book of Life. You want to be part of God's family? Here's how you are justified to become part of God's family. You're justified by your faith. You surrender your life in those moments. Jew or Gentile, both. And God will have compassion on who you'll have compassion on. Mm-hmm. All right, I got to squeeze this question in, and I'm looking at your direction, Tom Parrish. Why aren't pastors required to take an oath when they graduate from seminary to keep every discussion with a person who needs advice confidential? Uh, that's because the seminary professors are generally not pastors, and I hate to put it that way. <laughs> but most of those have elevated very quickly to become professors. They don't live in the day-to-day, but they should. And I believe that's important, and that oath should be there because— once you can reveal confidences in people, you know, you, your voice is gone. When people come to a pastor and, and confess their sins or whatever, that pastor is there to lead them to Jesus and certainly direct them to do the right thing by it. But those confidences have to be kept, and I believe in that for the last 50 years. 
Tom, are there parts of the pastoral duty, though, where there's mandatory reporting as well? And how does that play in when people are confessing their sins? Because people have been so yeah. wounded by their pastors who have broken confidentiality. But is there a mandatory yeah. reporting as well? What I tell people when they come in to see me and they go, I know I've got a really serious problem. Uh, I, and I usually have a pretty good glimpse of what's coming. Once in a while I get fooled. But on something where I think there might be something along that line, I tell them up front, you know, Jesus can forgive you anything. I'm here to help you with anything. But there's a mandatory reporting if there's child molestation or something else. And I will report. And, uh, you know, people have understood that. I had one guy who had said, yeah, I, I expected you to do that. And he was a molester. Mm-hmm. And we had to turn him in. Yeah. But we didn't abandon him either. And that's that's very different than breaking confidentiality on somebody's interpersonal issues or or a sinful pattern that they have or something like that. So I think pastors should always be saying, I do have to mandatorily report these events, but the rest is safe with me. And and I would be afraid that the person asking the question probably is another person who has been burned by that lack of confidence. I just can't see Jesus sitting around with his disciples and saying, hey, guys, you'll never guess it. I I ran into this woman at the well, and she she was just sleeping around, and she was talking to this and all. Oh, that just doesn't sound like Jesus, does it? Jeff, well said. Gentlemen, thank you so much for another uh, great time together. I always look forward to this hour, as do many people that uh, listen to Faith Radio. So thank you for spending this uh, time with me today. Appreciate it. Thank you so much. All right. That is our uh, guy talk for today. You can always send questions over. It doesn't have to be uh, Thursday during this hour. You can send them anytime. When you uh, get the question in your mind, just send it over, 877-933-2484, or you can email me, bill at myfaithradio.com. Coming up next, uh, you can take control of your thoughts. How about that? My guest is Patrick Morley. He's the author of the best-selling book, The Man in the Mirror, but he's written a new book called The Four Voices, Taking control of the conversation in your head. That's next. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.